It is a privilege uh, to serve you as an elder here at Church of the Redeemer, and occasionally I do get a chance to preach before you. And today is uh, Reformation Sunday, and we are celebrating the 501st year of Martin Luther uh, nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, which sparked the fire of the Protestant Reformation. And my oldest son, Jackson, had a really good idea. He said, for Reformation Day, Dad, why don't we decorate our porch with a big door, and each child can take turns nailing the 95 Theses. And I thought, well, that's not, that's not a bad idea. And then I had a vision of seven kids running rogue around with hammers nailing 95 Theses to my house, and I thought we'd go with just a pumpkin. But uh, today's sermon is entitled... Why are we reformed? And my message is going to be a narrative uh, in narrative form as we traverse through some of the events of the Reformation. But I hope my main point of emphasis, uh, points of emphasis, stand out. You just can't zone out. So turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 1 13 and 14. Now, before we turn to Scripture, I want to make this abundantly clear. This sermon today is not about how great we are and that in our supreme wisdom, we've got it all figured out. No, quite the contrary. I hope the primary things we will be left with at the end of the sermon is how great our God is, how precious His Word is, and the high calling of guarding the gospel. But we can be thankful by God's grace to be at a church that confesses and believes in the infallible, inerrant authority of the Word of God. So let's turn to that Word now, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul is speaking to Timothy, but really to the church as well. And he says this, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of God. Please be seated. So, the the good deposit Paul is referring to is the unchanging word of God. And in the original Greek, it means to be entrusted with another person's possession, with the responsibility to keep it safe and return it to the owner in the same condition in which it was received. When uh, April and I are occasionally asked to watch another child's uh, or another friend's child, it's especially important that we give that child back to their parents in the same condition in which they came, which, come to think of it, in our house is relatively hard to do. I mean, our our kids are relatively engaged in all sorts of battles, uh, from, you know, pirate uh, wars to Davy Crockett. The other day, there were poachers versus park rangers, and one was dressed like an endangered turtle, and it got violent. In fact, I can't guarantee your kid is going to come unscathed out of our house, so that was a bad example. So why don't we look to children's ministry instead? When you drop your kid off at children's ministry, you are entrusting the the wonderful team we have 
to care and guard them and return them to you in the same condition. And the word of God and the gospel is the good deposit of truth which is on loan to the body of Christ who is entrusted to keep it safe so that it can be returned to the Lord unchanged at the last day. John MacArthur says this, Every Christian, especially if he is in ministry, has the sacred trust to guard the revelation of God. And what Paul is telling Timothy is guard the good deposit of divine teaching, the teaching we find in the Holy Scriptures. As the bride of Christ, we have the duty to guard the Word, to cherish it, to pass it on to the next generations, proclaiming the gospel to all the world, and never, ever to add or take away from the gospel. And unfortunately, adding or subtracting or watering down the gospel message is not a hard thing to do. And nobody knew this more than the Apostle Paul. And and Paul says this uh, in Galatians chapter 1, speaking to the Galatians church. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. To Paul's astonishment, the Galatian church had turned so quickly from the true gospel to a false gospel. And what was going on here is this. Uh, Some Jewish Christians, probably from Jerusalem were teaching that Gentiles must only believe in Jesus what must not only believe in Jesus Christ but also accept circumcision and ceremonial law in order to be saved. They were teaching a gospel that was Christ and works righteousness in order to be made right with God. And Paul goes on saying, "For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel." For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is really about authority. We all know what authority is. This week, in fact, one of our four-year-olds was overheard telling the other four-year-old, I don't know why they're called this, but there are some people called adults, and those are the ones who can tell you not to do things. Authority. Paul contends that his authority and the gospel itself comes from God alone. The scriptures are authoritative, not because it depends on the testimony of any man or church, but on God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation... For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3:15 and 16, we know it well. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, and training in righteousness. The gospel isn't to be added or subtracted to. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Don't add or subtract to the gospel. And Paul tells Timothy, guard that good deposit. 
the body of Christ has been entrusted with. Now, in Martin Luther's day, in the 16th century in Western Europe, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was the church. And Luther loved the church and was committed to its teachings. So what was the church teaching? Well, the church certainly acknowledged the authority of Scripture, but she also acknowledged other authorities in the church as equivalent to Scripture, such as tradition or church pronouncement. And the church believed it had the authority to do so. And what had happened over time, really over a period of centuries, from the time of Jesus and the apostles to Martin Luther, was an emphasis more and more on Christ plus works in order to get right with God. Yes, you needed faith in Christ. And it was through God's grace. But getting right with God was a lifelong process where one receives more and more grace through the sacraments. And you could also fall out of this grace. So if you think of it like a scale, on one side you have grace-enabled merits, and on the other side you have sinful demerits. And at the end of your life, if you have more sinful demerits than grace-enabled demerits, well, you are on your way to purgatory. So you looked to baptism. You look to the Eucharist, what we call communion, and confession and acts of penance to merit the grace God had given you. And Martin Luther was faithful to do it all. He was a monk in the church, and he would spend hours and hours confessing his sin before God. In fact, he confessed so much that his priest told him, come to me with the big sins. Give me a break. You're exhausting me. Stop it. Come to me with the big stuff. Wouldn't we love to have a child like Luther coming to you and confessing sin all the time? Dad, I hit my brother over the head because I wanted his toy. He's unconscious upstairs. I was wrong. That's what happened. I see. Very good. It would be great. Luther confessed all the time. Martin Luther, though, was a man in great distress. No amount of work-based confessing could ease his sense of guilt. Martin Luther understood man's biggest problem is that God is holy and perfect and man is not. Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. And Luther was keenly aware of how great a sinner he was. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Luther understood better than I think most of us of what it means to have a holy God and sinful man. That the wages of sin is death. And he feared that God rightly could destroy body and soul in hell. Now that's not politically correct. You got to get some bad news before you get to the good news. And Luther knew he was born a sinner and that he would die a sinner. And everything he did was tainted with sin. That he was utterly and thoroughly infected by sin. Just like you and I are. And Luther recognized he would never measure up by his own righteousness. And the big question of Luther's was how do we ever get right with God? How is man saved? And then Luther began to study the scriptures anew. 
And what Luther found in the scriptures was none other than the gospel of God. What he found was that his works would never make him right with God. Galatians 5, 6 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be made right with God. And Martin Luther realized that the only righteousness that could ever save him could not come from Martin Luther. It had to come from God himself. And so we see in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And what Luther realized was that being made right with God comes through faith in Christ alone. Galatians 5, 6, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works, but through faith in Christ. And this is what we call the doctrine of, sancti- uh, of justification. Right here. Justification by faith alone. Which means that we are made right with God by the righteousness of Christ alone. Not by our goodness or our, go- our good deeds. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that through faith in Christ alone, your sin was placed on Christ and His righteousness through His perfect obedience and sinless life was placed on you. And that in Christ, your debt is fully and completely discharged. It's gone. Your sins are forgiven. And how do we get Christ's righteousness? How one might be saved. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith is an act. It is not a work. What faith is, is forsaking all, I trust in him. Faith is a personal trust that clings to Christ alone for salvation. It's the only way to salvation. is to put your trust in him alone. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we are made right with God. We are forgiven so that there is now no condemnation in Christ. All our sins are completely forgiven. For as far as the east is is from the, the west, our transgressions are from us. We are spared God's righteous wrath in hell for all eternity. And we are united to God for all eternity so that we may glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The joys of heaven for all eternity awaits those in Christ. And the wonderful thing is the peace of God is ours for the taking right here and now. And this good news of the gospel should make us all want to share it. People's souls are at stake. The other day, one of my boys said, Mom, I'm thinking about moving out and being a preacher. April said, Oh, well, we'll we'll miss you. And he said, Well, Mom, I just want to preach the word of God, and I'm tired of preaching to the walls upstairs. I need people. You know, 
we have the good news, and we ought to be proclaiming it. What good news? Good news to those whose hearts are open to it, that is. The gospel, frankly, guys, can be offensive. I mean, you're telling me I'm a sinner in need of a Savior? My sins aren't that bad. You're telling me that Christ is the only way to God? You're telling me I don't have to earn God's approval? Come on. What God would do that? We have to guard the gospel. We have to treasure it. And we must never water down the message of the gospel. For it has been given to us. We are entrusted with it. And you know the truly amazing thing about the gospel is this. Even our faith is a gift from God. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. What are you saying? It's not my faith? Oh, it's your faith, all right. The question is, where did it come from? The central truth of God's saving grace is stated this way. Salvation is from the Lord. It came as a gift we don't deserve. It came in the form of God's grace and mercy to us. We hear it all the time, Ephesians 2, 8, 8, 9, but let it sink in, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Notice the dead in trespasses in Ephesians 2, 1 and 10. Spiritually dead people have no desire for the things of God. They willfully follow a different course. The gospel is folly to them. But through God's gracious plan of redemption, God sovereignly imparts spiritual life through the Holy Spirit to, the, to those he chose from the beginning of the world taking away our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and drawing us to Christ, here's the key, to that we freely repent of sin and place our faith in Christ alone. We freely do it. Our hearts have been born again. We want Christ. We desire Him. When we understand, brothers and sisters, that we have faith only because of the work of the Holy Spirit then we can truly give God all the glory for salvation. Those who understand this biblical teaching ought to be the most humble, grateful of God's people because we know we played no part whatsoever in salvation, not even choosing God. That's humbling. So you might ask, what about the person who wants Jesus but isn't wanted by him? And I'm going to tell you, there is no such person. John 6 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There has never been a person who wanted to be a Christian and God said no. God says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And the gospel is proclaimed to all. Now, in 1517, Martin Luther was teaching in Wittenberg, Germany. 
and an evangelist from the church named Tetzel came to town, and he was selling indulgences, wrongly, I might add, from, from what was intended, but he, he was selling indulgences, which were basically a paper you could purchase that would guarantee you or a relative was released from purgatory. And Luther, who was so tormented at the time with, with this issue of repentance, was concerned that indulgences were just watering down repentance. You can just buy your ticket to heaven? Are you? No, we can't. We got to, you know, the way this is being uh, preached and teached to us is a problem. And so he nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg, Germany, as a way to spark academic debate. That is the way they used to do it. Put it on the church door, and we're going to talk about it. The problem for Luther was that the printing press had just recently been developed, and somebody took the 95 Theses and translated it from Latin to German and then spread it around the countryside faster than uh, a viral internet YouTube video. Okay, It was a spark. And what happened was, was this spark forced Luther to come to terms with what he truly believed and where he thought the ultimate authority rested. Was it in the church or was it in Scripture? So Luther's real breakthrough came two years ago, two years after, actually, hammering the 95 Theses, where he came to know the true gospel. And Luther began to teach and preach the gospel and start questioning many of the other teachings of the church. And he was finally dragged before the court of the Holy Roman Empire for going against official church teaching and ordered to recant. All your writings, we want you to recant from them. And Luther was torn, and he wrestled with this big issue of, should I recant? And he came back the following day, and he said the, the famous words, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive to the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. And what Luther was boldly proclaiming, knowing that his life was on the line, was Scripture is the master, church is the minister. And we don't believe in this church that it's just me and my Bible. We believe that the church is the minister of the Word of God. But we firmly believe that Scripture is the master. And that we don't, belie and we don't believe that the church or any man has any authority whatsoever to add or remove one ounce to the gospel. The Reformation was a return to the biblical teaching we call the five solas, which stated simply is, salvation is by God's grace alone. It's a gift we don't deserve. God owes us nothing. It's on the basis of Christ's work and death alone. It's received through faith alone. All things lead ultimately to the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone being the only final decisive authority for faith and practice. 
It's the five solas of the Reformation. A return to the biblical doctrines of, uh, the, uh, and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Now, Luther wasn't the only reformer of his day. There were many. But there was one who stood out as the great theologian of the Reformation, and his name was John Calvin. Now, there is no record of Calvin and Luther uh, ever meeting, but what a pair they would have been. The boisterous, beer-drinking Luther and the quiet bookworm Calvin. Uh, They might have gotten along quite, quite well as opposites. But Calvin never sought the limelight. He wasn't trying to get a cult following. He wanted his books. He wanted a quiet library. And he wanted his homeland, France. And instead, he ended up under some duress as pastor in Geneva, Switzerland. And John Calvin, let me tell you, is hated and loved today. I'm sure a lot of you think of Calvin and immediately think of a flower. What, what do we think of? Tulip. Right, the five points of Calvinism. Many people think of Calvin as a hand-wringing man obsessed with who and will and will not be saved. I uh, deeply love April's grandfather, uh, and he loves Jesus. He's a sweet, uh, strong Christian and uh, a lot of fun to talk with. Uh, He wears overalls. He calls everybody old buddy. You know, he's a good fella, but... He has no liking for John Calvin, and let me tell you. And I was out in eastern North Carolina visiting them once and sitting out in the garden. All of a sudden, out of the blue, he hit me. He's like, let me tell you something. John Calvin has led more people astray than Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said, well, uh, Grandpa, you know I'm a Calvinist Presbyterian, right? And he said, ha, 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 I forgot, old buddy. And that's all he said pulled a Luther. He wouldn't recant. You know, if if Calvin was around today, I really don't think he would like the term Calvinism. I don't think he'd appreciate people saying that Jesus was a Calvinist or the Apostle Paul was a Calvinist. What I think he would like people to say about him is what John Piper has to say about him. For Calvin, nothing mattered more than the centrality, supremacy, and majesty of the glory of God. I believe that that was Calvin's primary motivation, that God might increase and the people of God might decrease as we bask in his glorious work of redemption. And God used Calvin's diligent study and proclamation of the word of God to proclaim God's glory throughout Europe and beyond. And the churches in Switzerland and France became known as Reformed. John Calvin's study of God's word and theology would have a great impact on a man named John Knox, who was a Scottish reformer who went back to Scotland and founded what is known as the Presbyterian Church. Eventually out of England... From 1643 to 1649, think about it, six years, 120 Bible scholars met continuously in order to stop heretical teaching that was infiltrating the church. And they drew up a reform statement, a, a confession of faith we call the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our confession we use 
in this very church today with some revisions. And our confession is a succinct exposition of biblical truth. It is a confession with scripture at its root that outlines and summarizes to the world and the church, this is what we believe. It doesn't claim to be infallible any more than I'm claiming my sermon is infallible. It's not used to supplant scripture, it's used to complement scripture and to point to scripture. And you can be a member here in good standing and not agree with it. But I believe it is an excellent summary of biblical truth. And I highly recommend you get the confession and the catechisms and you teach them to your children and you pour over them because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's 107 questions and answers at your disposal to teach your kids and yourself about God. But all, all that to be said is, is this. I want to end on this. I think the primary interest of Reformed theology... Are you ready for the primary interest? The primary interest of Reformed theology is the triune God. It's to view all of life before the face of God. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. Throughout all of history, God has been on the move. He's our creator. He's our judge. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. For by him and through him and to him are all things. The very purpose of the universe, the very reason we are here, is what Isaiah 43 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's purpose in creating the universe was that he would glorify himself in all that he does in creation, providence, and redemption. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to give Him the honor He is due. And you might ask, how do we glorify Him? How do we glorify God? What does that even mean? It's obedience to His Word. Joel Beakey writes, Obedience to God's Word means taking refuge in Christ for forgiveness of our sins. It's knowing him through the scriptures. It's serving him with a loving heart. It's doing good works in gratitude for his goodness and exercising self-denial to the point of loving our enemies. This response involves total surrender to God himself, his word, and his will. True faith in Christ will produce fruitful works of obedience to God. Not works that can ever save us, but works done to glorify God who alone is worthy of worship. And, and some of us, when we hear this, might think of this reaction, might have this reaction. How can a, you worship a God who is so self-exalting and so self-centered as the God of the Bible? Isn't that self-centered arrogance? Is God some sort of egomaniac? C.S. Lewis actually said this was one of the greatest obstacles 
for him to believe in God. He likened God to a vain woman who wants compliments. And I would add a vain man who wants compliments. Have you seen YouTube lately? The truth is this. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need us. He didn't need to create us. He didn't need to save us. He didn't need to redeem us. He is totally and perfectly complete within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. God didn't need us, and yet He created man out of His good pleasure, in His image. He created a people in His image He knew would turn from Him in rebellion to then send His Son to earth as a man to live the perfect life we could never do, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty, to satisfy His holy wrath, to raise from the dead triumphantly. He opens our dead hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might have faith in Christ alone and be saved. He loves you more than you could ever realize. And He does this all in order to put His glory on display for the delight of His created beings so that we might declare His greatness. Where else would He send us? It would be sinful and wicked to point us anywhere else than to the source of true joy and goodness Himself. For it is in God alone where we will find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Let's pray.